0: news from the Classic City. I am Jamie Cheek. This is A View from the Couch. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. We've got reaction to the weekend in college football and in pro football, and we're going to talk a little bit about the Braves as they know their opponent for the wild card round of the playoffs that starts on Wednesday. We've got a lot to cover today and a lot of strong opinions, so let's get it started. Uh-huh. We're going to start with uh, my reaction to Georgia's victory 37 to to 10, excuse me, 37 to 10 over Arkansas on Saturday afternoon. Uh, Man, it would be pretty cliche to say that it was a tale of two halves or it was the best of times and the worst of times. The reality is it's just the most confusing of times because I cannot remember Over the past 20 or so years that I have been following Georgia football weekly, a a half of football that looked even as close as bad as the first half did against Arkansas. And, you know, Kirby Smart said after the game that the quarterback position, he says it many times, but the quarterback position is the most overvalued and over-scrutinized position in all of football. And he said that in the context of saying that, hey, everything isn't on the quarterbacks. And so... Obviously, in the time after the game, the, the the fact that Mathis was replaced in the game, a lot has been laid at his feet for that first half. But the reality is, it was a group effort, offensively and defensively, that made that that first half as discombobulated as it was. Because the reality is, while the defense was solid, They still gave up a touchdown on a drive that featured not one, but two pass interference calls. And they end up allowing, you know, for at least a drive, they allowed uh, the quarterback for Arkansas, Felipe Franks, to look like he was actually good at football, when we know that is not the case. But, of course, the offense was the biggest issue, and, and and it wasn't just Mathis. You know, there were penalties, there were missed blocks, there were poorly run routes, there was very poor run blocking, and the, and the running backs themselves didn't break a tackle that I could tell in the first half. So I went back and watched the first um, six possessions of the games, and those were the six possessions that DeJuan Mathis was the starting quarterback. And, you know, it was just bad all the way around. It was, you know, Mathis – I thought the first two possessions was pretty good. You know, the first possession, he, he had a couple of positive plays. He completed a couple of passes. They got a first down. And then um, there's a false start that took him from third and four to third and nine. And he scrambles out of the pocket and gets lit up on the sideline. And on the the reason he had to scramble on that play was because James Cook, who is a junior, misses a block. He just, he just completely misses the blitzer. So – that one did not look good. Um, I mean, I I say that the beginning of the drive looked good. There was some positive plays, but ultimately Mathis takes the huge hit on the sideline. The next possession, you know, you don't really get anything going first down. There was a, a run right up the middle for a one yard loss. The second, uh, Second play of the drive, the throw out into the flat that was nearly picked off, probably should have been picked off, and if it was picked off, it would have probably gone in for a a pick six. And then on third and 11, no one's open. The, The line did a pretty good job this time of giving Mathis time, but nobody's open, scrambles to the right, gains 10 yards on third and 11, and steps out a yard early after being told, hey, stop taking those big hits like he got in the first drive. So after that, it got pretty bad for Mathis, just inconsistent, no more. After the second drive of the game, Actually, after the first drive of the game, there were no called quarterback runs. So I think while there were issues with the offense, there were issues with the execution, of course there was issues with all the penalties, I think there was also issues with the play calling because Mathis looked discombobulated on his third and fourth and fifth drives, and at no point did they seem to be able from a pe- play calling standpoint to hit the reset button and get him back feeling comfortable. He had a couple of positive plays in there, but they never called another run where he could just go out there and have superior talent and, and pick up some yardage and get some confidence. So we know that Stetson Bennett comes into the game, plays very, very well, 20 of 29, and and really just fuels the offense in the second half to what ended up being a blowout, you know. So – you know, the the cliche thing that you hear a lot of the time is there's no, no such thing as a bad road win in the SEC. And if you would have told me before the game, hey, the final score is 37 to 10, I'm taking it. My first thought would have been, wow, they scored 10? Hmm. But 37, that sounds good for a, an offense that had as much to replace as we did. Um, and, you know, 10 points is nothing in the modern football game. So I, I, to me, the, the margin of victory does not tell the story. Um, And the final score does not tell the story because if you watch that game, you can't feel confident as a Georgia fan going ahead in the season. The only thing that I think you could take as a bright spot, because the defense giving up 10 points to Arkansas and the way that they did it, there were a lot of positives you saw on the defense. But you expect that. And so I kind of feel like and I talked about this last week on the on the college football preview podcast it kind of felt like this defense would have to be absolutely perfect in every aspect of the game, or we were going to be a little bit disappointed. And I had a couple of different people text me saying, "Uh, the defense doesn't look good. And I'm like, well, what are you looking at? Because that good is in context. Did did they play perfectly? Of course not. Did they give up some points? Yes, they did. But if you give up 10 points a week in the SEC, you're going to win probably all the games that you play. So the overall performance I thought was very good from the defense. I thought – the individual plays, you know, Richard LeCount ends up with two interceptions in this game, but he also got burned for the touchdown, so it, it kind of gives and takes a little bit. I thought Tyreek Stevenson, uh, the, the second-year player there and that was playing star and played a lot in the dime formation, he looked bad. He got beat multiple times, so there are definitely things to work on for the defense, but when the defense performs at the level that it did, I think you have to be happy that that's the opening salvo for this defense and that you would expect with all the talent they already have – as the season goes on, they'll just continue to get better and better and better. The quarterback situation oh sorry, let's let's back up one more bright spot, special teams. The brightest spot, to be honest, because we had great kick and punt returns. A couple of them got called back because of blocking in the back. But I mean, just the the individual effort from those returners was excellent. Great punting from Camarda. He was named special teams player of the week in the SEC today because he when, when the offense couldn't do anything. In that first half, he kept Arkansas pinned in time after time after time. He had not one of those punts go in for a touchback, not one. And that is huge when you have a team like Arkansas that doesn't have a great offense. When you put them at the 10 or the 5-yard line on every single drive, it really protected Georgia and gave Georgia the opportunity to make the change at quarterback that ultimately led to the comfortable victory. Without Jake Camarda pinning Arkansas in, maybe they are able to eke out another field goal or two, you know, over the course of that first half or early second half, and maybe it's a little bit harder for Georgia to come back in that game. It definitely changes the dynamics when, you know, you're down seven to five at halftime, but then you come back, and you're down ten to five. You score a touchdown. Well, now you're in the lead. So now everybody can take a breath. And you can go out and do exactly what they did, which is dominate the rest of the game on both sides of the ball. But Camarda was absolutely the MVP of this game. That's no disrespect to Stetson Bennett, but Camarda is the only reason that Bennett was able to do what he was able to do. And so, well, well done by Jake Camarda. And then Pod, I don't know how to say his last name, guys. So we went from Rod to Pod, and we're going to call him Pod here on the podcast But the new kicker, you know, I talked about how it was important that the kicking game not take a a step back. Obviously, it's going to take a step back when you have a new kicker doing it for the first time compared to Rodrigo Blankenship, who had done it for so long at such a high level. But through one game, two made field goals and two attempted and two made. You know, Sam Pittman called timeout before one of the kicks. Actually, the first kick, um, Pittman calls timeout. They go ahead and kick it anyway and hit the upright. And so he got that one out of the way and then he was able to calm down and hit two field goals later in the game. So special teams were very, very good, which, you know, the biggest question mark, I think coming into this game from a coaching standpoint was how would Scott Cochran special teams look? And through one week, the answer is they look pretty good. So now we can move on to the quarterback situation. Um, I will say this. It was very strange to me of how it all played out. And it's hard. I mean, we, we know what happened. We know how the game played out. We can look at the statistics to see that Bennett played really, really well. And statistically, Mathis played awful. So these are the facts. I will say my feeling about them, I was pretty disappointed when Bennett came in the game, even after Georgia started winning. I was very glad when they brought Mathis back in, even though he didn't play very well, even once he came back in the game. To me... Dewan Mathis is a guy that has a skill set that is very, very likely to win, to lead to a lot of wins in college football in the modern era. Now, whether or not he himself, the player Dewan Mathis, ever matures to the point where he could be a difference maker for the University of Georgia, nobody knows. But I want that. Opportunity. I hope he continues to develop. I hope they continue to give him opportunities in practice and in game situations because he seems to me like he has some of the tools to be a very special player. He obviously got completely and totally overwhelmed in this situation on Saturday. I mean, it's an SEC environment. He has not played a meaningful football game in two years since he was in high school. And all of a sudden, a year removed from brain surgery, he's out there as the starting quarterback. So Maybe there needs to be more time in the film room. Maybe he just needs more in-game experience. I don't know. But I saw glimpses, however brief they might have been, of something that I am interested in as a fan of the University of Georgia, which is a true dual-threat quarterback. Now, the reality is he's not ready for primetime, and there's no way in the world he can start against uh, Auburn this weekend. So I just thought it was really strange how quickly they moved away from him. Um, now, it worked, so you can't really criticize Kirby for moving away from him because he pushed exactly the right button, and Stetson Bennett played very, very well. Um, I don't know when you see the coaches film and you can see the whole field. I don't know if there were just easy passes that Mathis wasn't attempting or if there were open guys that he was missing, but it seemed completely like a completely different offense when Bennett came in the game. Moving forward, the news came out just today that JT Daniels, and this is the exact wording, will be cleared for the Auburn game. And Kirby said he doesn't know what that means as far as who will start against Auburn. Um, I personally am already sick and tired of the Kirby T leaves when it comes to the quarterback situation. When the depth chart came out on Saturday, it read DeWan Mathis or Stetson Bennett or Carson Beck or JT Daniels. I understand gamesmanship, it's fine with me, but at at some point you're lying to your fan base. And I I think that's where, for me, as long as you're winning, this stuff that Kirby keeps doing, closed practices, you know, only letting the media have a couple of minutes, being very short with people and not really giving real answers in press conferences, that stuff only works when you're winning and winning at the highest level. And I'm starting, even with a 1-0 record, I'm starting to get kind of tired of not answering these questions because it's at this point when you see the way that team played at the beginning of the game and then he's saying for weeks we don't know who our quarterback is well you you sure played like it in that first half coach so I don't know maybe he's telling the truth and we all just think he's being cheeky but at the end of the day I wish he would just come out and say Stetson's the guy this week it's his job to lose JT looks like he's going to be able to go DeWan's still in the mix whoever has the best week of practice That's who's going to play on Saturday. I would be fine with that because I think that's probably the the situation. I think what we really have when we look at the quarterback situation at Georgia is just an absolutely insane fan reaction or or I guess kind of a fan assumption over the last few weeks that, that, that definitely influenced me. So I am a member of UGA Sports.com. I enjoy the content that they put on their website. It's a rival site, the, the Georgia rival site. And their message boards are fantastic. And if you listen to, they have a podcast every week with Jim Donnan. And for the last couple of weeks, Donnan said, hey, I'm excited about Mathis. I've heard good things about Mathis. Well, the reality is nobody knew anything. And going back to the beginning of August, when Jamie Newman opted out. Very, very quickly, the assumption was made by some in the fan base that the reason Newman often opted out was because he was running scared because JT Daniel had beat him out for the starting quarterback job and he knew his draft stock was going to plummet if he, as a grad transfer, came into a job and had no opportunity to actually play meaningful minutes this year because JT Daniel was the guy. Well, about two and a half weeks ago, when it was obvious that JT Daniels wasn't going to be cleared and it was going to be DeJuan Mathis, then the fan base shifted and it was like, oh, it wasn't Daniel that was going to beat out Newman. It was Mathis. Oh, good to know, man. Mathis, he's going to be really, really good. Well, you know, about 45 minutes after kickoff uh, on Saturday afternoon, we all realized that, you know what? Jamie Newman was going to be the starting quarterback of this team. And the fact that he isn't means that this offense isn't as good and isn't as far along as they would be had Jamie Newman been here. Now, it's not Newman's fault that he opted out, but I think the fan base needs to take a big breath and understand that him opting out had nothing to do with the fact that this wasn't going to be his job. Because unless JT Daniel plays this weekend and goes on to be a contender for the Heisman, I don't think... We can assume at this point, a week into practice, when Newman actually opted out, that anybody had beat him out for that job. I think Jamie Newman did what he thought was best for him, and I have no problem with that. But for the fan base, you saw what DeWan Mathis is right now. If what we've been saying for the last two weeks, that he won this job, not that he got the job because Daniel wasn't healthy, if he won this job, Georgia's in a bad situation at the quarterback position, and I don't know how quickly it'll get better. Today when the news comes out that Daniels is clear, everybody on the message board, everybody on social media is, well, all right, he'll come in and he'll start. Maybe he will. The one thing that Saturday did show us is that Kirby is prepared to make changes if something's not working. And as a Georgia fan, I take some solace into that because I'll be honest with you, if he would have had that same thought process in 2018 that Justin Fields would still be on the field at Georgia, and we wouldn't be talking about any of this. But when Fromm struggled during the 2018 season, he wasn't going away from Fromm no matter what, and J- and Justin Fields never got an o- a real opportunity at Georgia. The fact that when Mathis struggled on Saturday, he was willing to put Stetson Bennett in there means to me that Maybe Kirby's learned something over the last couple of years. So he may start Stetson, and he may end up going to JT, or he may start JT and go to Stetson, or DeJuan Mathis might get back in this fix. I don't know, but as long as we got the best guy on the field, the guy that's playing the best and gives us the best chance to win, I think as a fan, that's all you can ask for. However, we have to stop assuming that Kirby is playing games here. He didn't keep JT Daniel out for an extra week to get ready for Auburn. He's not messing around here. Our quarterback situation is not good. We need to accept that and go forward understanding that this is not going to be a year where we're going to blow people out 55-3. to Now, we could still win a lot of games, and I still think we will win a lot of games. But it's not going to be easy, and the fan base better get ready for that because, let's be honest, Arkansas is, if not the worst team in the conference, one of the worst teams in the conference. And for a half of football, we looked like we were neck and neck with them. So we're going to talk a little bit more uh, about, obviously, the quarterback situation that progresses throughout the week, and we'll have a full open preview on the College Football Preview Show on Thursday. But for now, let me just leave you with this kind of thought for this season. We saw on Saturday a team that is in transition. And the one thing that I think I can say with some confidence is this is a new offense. I talked about that on Thursday about I'm, I'm interested to see the the philosophical way that Todd Munkin runs his offense. And while there was so much of it, and, you, and, and, and listen, please hear me. I am not saying that Munkin sucks and we should go ahead and start looking for somebody else. Quite the opposite. I'm talking about philosophy, not execution now. Georgia threw the ball 47 times on Saturday. As bad as we were in the first half, as good as it was in the second half, Bennett was 20 of 29. So that means that on the road in the SEC with a first-time starting quarterback, that starting quarterback in Mathis threw the ball 18 times. Go back and look at Jake Fromm in 2017, the year that we were playing with a championship-level defense, a lot of experience on offense, and eventually made it all the way to the national championship game with a freshman quarterback. Look at how many games. I mean, Mathis didn't even play the first half, but if you if you just take his stats from the part of the first half that he played, and then pro, and project it over a whole game, you're not going to find any games outside of the Missouri game in 2017 where Jake Fromm threw over 36 passes. And in the first game with Juan Mathis, that was the pace he was on. And with Bennett playing better in the second half, Georgia threw the ball 47 times. This is not your 2019 or 2018 or 2017 Georgia offense. This is a new philosophy. It's not exactly the air raid that we saw between Mississippi State and LSU, but Georgia's offense is different. It's going to be different. It's going to be more centered on passing. It's not all going to be 40 yards downfield and all of that, but it's just going to be passing-based, and we have to get ready for that. Hopefully, Georgia will still be able to run the ball effectively, but I think the days of kind of using the statistic, I think at one point Mark Rick had only lost three games in his career when Georgia had a running back go over 100 yards. I'm not sure how often we're going to have backs go over 100 yards anymore. You know, I thought Zamir played really well in the second half. He ended up with like 70-something yards for the day. I mean, we'll we'll have guys go over 100, but this is not going to be a run-based offense anymore. It's going to be a pass-based offense, and we're going to use the pass to set up the run. And even late in the game, Georgia was still throwing the ball. And to me, that does signal a shift in philosophy when it comes to offense. Now, whether or not that's a good thing, I'm not exactly ready to say yet. But I think it's obvious even after one game, there is a different offense for the University of Georgia. The last thing I want to say about the first week of college football, as it pertains to Georgia and it pertains to everybody, take a breath. We have one game sample size. After this week, we will have 100% more information about this team, about the offense, about the defense, about the special teams. The most egregious error that fans make in football is drawing too many conclusions from the first game of the season. It's a long season. Georgia won the game, and that's what they needed to do. We will continue to see how things progress over the course of this year, but there is a lot of football in front of us and a very little football behind us. So don't overreact to week one. We have a big test coming to Athens this week. The spotlight of the nation is going to be on Athens, Georgia. Game day is here. Chris Fowler and Kirk Herbstreit are calling the game here on Saturday night. It's a big game. In Athens this week, as big as Notre Dame and Georgia was last year from a ranking standpoint, this game is equally as big. You've got number four, Georgia and number seven, Auburn. It's a big game. And under those bright lights, we'll see what this Georgia program is made of. And what this 2020 year, this is going to be a defining game. It's not the only defining game, but this is the first defining game for this team because everybody expects us. I mean, Barrett Sally came out this week and weekend and said, Auburn's going to blow the doors off of Georgia. We'll see. That could very well happen. And given what happened in the first half against Arkansas, I can't tell you with confidence that this team's going to come out and blow the doors off of anybody or stop any other team from blowing the doors off of them. I just think reactionary, uh, Opinions like that usually make you look stupid down the road. Move on to our Falcon segment today, and I'm just going to tell you right now, it's going to be a pretty short segment. The Atlanta Falcons managed to lose yet again for the third week in a row, and in the second week in a row, they lost the same way. Uh, the Falcons led by 16 points in the fourth quarter and managed to lose by three to the Chicago Bears uh, on Sunday. And Dan Quinn's team is now 0 and 3. They have had at least a three-game losing streak in four of the five seasons under Dan Quinn. Um, it may be defensive issues in the second half. It may be second-half offensive issues. It's definitely leadership and culture issues, but the reality of the Falcons franchise right now is that there are issues. And it's not my job to figure out what the problem is, but the Falcons were in position to be 3-0, and and they're 0-3, and that doesn't happen in the NFL. The NFL is a league that is built from its schedule to the way the draft is set up to free agency. The league is built for 8-8, eight and eight, and to underperform as much as the Falcons have underperformed in the first three weeks of the season, you would think that they would have screwed up and won one of those games. Maybe not Seattle. Seattle's a really good team. But they had the game against Dallas, won. They had the game against the Bears, won. And the fact that they couldn't finish those two games out and the fact, especially yesterday, that they managed to lose exactly in the same way that they had lost the previous week shows that nothing changed. Nothing changed with the mentality of the team. Nothing changed with the mentality of the coaching staff. Nothing changed from week two to week three for you to come out and do that same exact thing again. And now we have to at least consider what I'm about to say. And I, am, I want to be clear. I'm asking questions. I'm not drawing conclusions. But as of today, if the NFL season ended today, the number one pick in the 2021 NFL draft would belong to your Atlanta Falcons. And there is a certain quarterback at Clemson who is presumed to come out of Clemson this year and be the number one pick in the 2021 NFL Draft. And if this season continues, and I don't think it actually will, but if this season continues to spiral in this way, Arthur Blank, he's going to fire Dan Quinn. That, it's a question of when, not if. But whenever he hires his new coach, You have to wonder if they will hit the reset button on this franchise. And you can hit it in multiple ways. You can go draft Trevor Lawrence, keep Matt Ryan for another year, and let Lawrence kind of ease into it. You can draft Trevor Lawrence and trade Matt Ryan. I I mean, Matt Ryan is a fantastic quarterback. I, I wonder what you could get for him. Maybe another first round pick. Calvin Ridley has been playing really well. Do you go ahead and trade Julio Jones? I don't know. I'm asking these questions because we're 0-3 after three games. We've lost in dramatically spectacular fashion, and it just doesn't feel like this franchise has any kind of direction. And I understand that giving up on a guy like Matt Ryan at this point in his career could be suicide for a franchise, but getting a guy like Trevor Lawrence could completely change the destiny of this franchise. So it's at least something that has to be considered if this season continues to go in this direction. Now, there's a lot of games left, 13 games left. And if history shows us anything, it's actually that what we can expect from this team is that it will bounce back and that it will end up somewhere between six and 10 and eight and eight. Not good enough to make the playoffs and actually make a run in the playoffs, but too good to get a viable draft pick that's really going to change the situation of this team on the field. Where the Falcons are, exactly where the Atlanta Hawks were for about a decade uh, to the, from the early to early 90s into the early 2000s, which is to say that they are in sports hell. They are not good enough to compete with championships, but they're too good to get number one overall draft picks. So it's going to be interesting to see not only when Arthur Blank finally makes the decision to let Dan Quinn go, but then what the direction of the franchise is. Because you have an aging starting quarterback, you have an aging star receiver that you are paying a lot of money to. Do you think there's time to bring in another coach while those two guys are still in their prime and win? And it's a tough question because you would definitely be losing probably two seasons of Matt Ryan's prime and probably two or three seasons of Julio Jones prime. So I don't want to see those guys go, especially Julio. But the reality is that the long term future of the franchise could be on the line here. And Arthur Blank has made some terrible choices when it was time to make the hard choice when in respect to Dan Quinn. I do not trust Arthur Blank to make the right choice for the future of this franchise at this time, because let's be honest, it has been dramatically downhill since this the end of the 2016 season when we lost that Super Bowl. And the other thing is this, we have enough of a sample size to know that the 2016 year, the, the Super Bowl year, that's the aberration. That is not the expectation under Dan Quinn. That was the exception to the Dan Quinn rule. Look at the rest of these years, look at how the team has performed, That's who Dan Quinn is. Jeff Schultz, or actually Mark Bradley in the AJC, wrote an article after yesterday's game that said somebody stopped Dan Quinn before he coaches another football game. But let's be honest, it does not. If it was going to happen, it would have already happened today. It's it's Monday evening now. It's not happening. Dan Quinn's going to continue being the coach of this team at least for a couple of more weeks, and we're going to have to continue to just watch this team fall further and further away from where it was when that Super Bowl ended in such disappointing fashion four years ago. Moving on, we're going to talk about the Atlanta Braves. They finished out the season with uh, a series loss to the Red Sox uh, in a series that did not matter um, as the Braves had already clinched the, uh, the number two seed Uh, in the NL playoffs, and after all of the games were done, on Sunday afternoon, the matchup was probably the one that most Braves fans uh, who have been paying attention were the least excited about, and kind of the team that you hope the Braves avoided, which is the Cincinnati Reds. Uh, So it will be the Braves and the Reds. They will have first pitch of game one on Wednesday at noon, because, you know, why not? There's nothing like some lunchtime baseball. There's no crowd anyway, so you can't call it a businessman special. I guess it's the uh, quarantine man special, but um, that's going to be game one. It's going to be Max Freed against Trevor Bauer, and so in this new playoff format, we, we really don't know what to expect, but kind of just kind of playing it out here. Game one is always important in any series, but in this series, it's Exponentially more important than even in a you know in a five game series because you're one game away. You win game one, you're one game away from advancing. But I think what I want to talk about a little bit is just the, the the what losing game one will do, not just to the Braves but just to any team because once you lose game one, you are now in a win or go home situation, which means that. You have to manage the game differently. Your players feel differently when it's an elimination game. So for the Braves, if if it does happen that Bauer beats the Braves in game one, you got Ian Anderson going out there in game two, and, and you can't let him struggle even a little bit. If he gives up two runs in the first inning, he's out of the game. And in every situation throughout the game, you have to go with your best pitching option. At that moment, which means that you can burn your bullpen up just trying to survive, which means that if you lose game one and somehow you manage to win game two, you could absolutely find yourself in a situation where you're in a horrible spot in game three with maybe your best relievers already pitching in back-to-back days and having to turn around and try to go out there and do it three days in a row because you had your back up against the wall. So. I don't think it's all on Max Fried, but I definitely think it's all on the Braves to go out there and win game one for the first time in a very long time. The Braves, as you know, have not won a playoff series since 2001 when they beat the Astros in the divisional round of the playoffs, only to lose in the NLCS to the eventual world champion Diamondbacks. So here we are again, trying to break a nearly 20-year-old losing streak in the playoffs. The Reds and the Braves have a very interesting matchup. Everybody knows how bad the Braves' pitching is. Uh, They are the worst in the history of baseball. That's what I have written down here. I don't know that that's statistically true, but, boy, it feels like it. Um, The Reds have the number two pitching staff in the National League uh, based on ERA. Now, their win-loss record isn't great. You know, when you see that Bowers' ERA is sub-two, but he was five and four on the year. He's got two complete game shutouts, Um, so you can't get to him. A little bit. I mean, he lost four games, but he lost four games this year because the Reds have the second worst offense in the National League and the Braves have the second best offense in all of Major League Baseball. So it really is a strength versus strength and weakness versus weakness kind of matchup here as the Braves pitching staff that has struggled all year is going to go up against a Cincinnati Reds offense that has struggled all year and this vaunted off or uh, starting pitching for the Cincinnati Reds is going to have to figure out a way to get out in this great Atlanta lineup so it should make for a very interesting season or (laughs) series and if I was a neutral this probably would be the series that I'm the most interested in unfortunately I'm not neutral so I am absolutely interested in this series but I will be watching every pitch with one eye closed because man it has been hard to be a Brave fan in the postseason for, I don't know, about 25 years now. Um, The reality of this series is that the, the bullpen should be a strength But, of course, and and, and I mean, the fact that it's the same guy is really some bad juju. But Chris Martin left the game on Sunday. And you'll remember last year, game one of the NLDS against the Cardinals, the Braves had a lead. They were set up to be able to go to Martin, to Green, and Melanson and finish out the game. Martin gets injured, Freed comes in, and the Cardinals end up winning the game. So Martin goes out yesterday. Will Smith struggled again. Uh, Luke Jackson did Luke Jackson things. Uh, Darren O'Day gave up a home run. Uh, It's not doom and gloom when it comes to the bullpen because of the course of this year, they have been very good, but it was enough to happen on Sunday afternoon in a game that didn't matter against the Red Sox. It was enough to make you go, oh God, not this again. So the question I think where this series boils down, because I think you're going to get a good start out of Max Freed, but you're going to get a good start out of Trevor Bauer as well. I think Ian Anderson and Kyle Wright They're going to give you, if they have to pitch, uh, well, Anderson will have to pitch, and if Wright has to pitch, I think you're going to get good starts out of them. But if you're expecting any of these guys for the Braves to go seven or eight innings with no runs given up, that is super unlikely based on all of the evidence we have from this season. So what it's going to happen and what the series is going to go down to, and honestly what the playoff run is going to come down to, is can the Braves offense that has been so good – For this entire mini 60 game season, continue to do what they have done, which is to say hit good pitching, drive up pitching counts, and take advantage of bullpens. That's how the Braves can win this series by scoring runs consistently in the sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth innings. That's how they've won all year. That's how they'll have to win in the playoffs. They did not do that last year. Now, this year's offense over the course of 162 games would be statistically better than last year's offense, but last year's offense was very, very good, but by the time you got to the playoffs, Josh Donaldson was already in free agency, Freddie Freeman was injured, and Brian McCann was banging on a trash can somewhere, and the only guys that really did anything of some significance for this Braves offense was Dan Sponson, Adam Duvall, and of course Ronald Acuna Jr., who was lazy in the uh, playoffs last year. So, Will we see this offense continue to carry on, or will they get tight? Because essentially that's what happened last year. When the Braves were trailing last year, they got tight. So I think it's logical to assume that at some point in this series, the Braves are going to be trailing in the middle innings of the game, and it's going to be up to this Braves offense to win. We won with pitching in the 90s. I'm not saying we're going to have to win with offense throughout the 2020s, But in 2020, we're going to have to win with offense. We're going to have to hope to get just enough starting pitching, our bullpen to play really, really well, and this offense to continue doing what it did in the regular season by scoring runs late against middle relievers. If they can't do that, this series will be over, and this season will be over in the next couple of days. So I think the Braves are the better team. The question is whether or not that fatal flaw of poor starting pitching will cost them. Um I don't know how. I can't give you the formula because I don't think this this team and this you know weird season with this weird series that's never happened before. It's the first wild card round playoff game in the National League's history. That's what the Braves and the Reds will be doing tomorrow at noon or Wednesday at noon. I can't tell you how it's going to play out. I do think the Braves are going to win this series by hook or by crook. I think it's going to be a much taller task moving forward, but I do think they've shown that they're a good team. They've managed to win, and the Reds, for all of the the good things they have going for them, they, they just aren't going to have enough offense to win this series. So I'm picking the Braves to win the series, or at least I'm hoping that the Braves will win this series. Finish up today's episode with things I think I think. Um, the first thing I think I think is I think I jumped the gun on tech last week. I, I should have known better. I should have never professed any kind of confidence in the North Avenue Nerds. But the Nerds went up to Syracuse on Saturday against a Syracuse team that is 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 really bad. And they managed to lose in convincing fashion by turning the ball over repeatedly and making mistake after mistake after mistake. And while I still think Jeff Collins is probably the right fit at Georgia Tech and all of the things that he is doing, um, it, it seems good and it seems like stuff that should work in the modern age of college football. And it seems like he's got a quarterback that as he continues to grow will be able to execute. There is a very good chance by this time next year we're asking the question, is Jeff Collins the new Butch Jones? Because for all of the hype, for all of the quips and all of the quirky things and and, and all the positive things that he says at press conferences and all of the positive things he does on social media, the team keeps losing. And, you know, they're going to be underdogs in their next five games. I said last week even, you know, you, you could get better this year and still have a pretty bad record. They're at the point now where they could end up winning two or three games this entire season. And so it's hard to look at the team and say they're heading in the right direction when they're gonna have, you know, five or six wins combined over Jeff Collins' first two years in the head coach of Georgia Tech. So I'm not necessarily going and flipping what I said just one week ago, but I guess I am tempering my expectations a little bit because for all the extra stuff he's doing, at the end of the day, college football is a business of wins and losses, and there's a whole lot more losses than wins on Georgia Tech for the last year and a half, and boy, I will be shocked if they win a game uh, before November. The second thing I think I think is the Georgia quarterback situation needs to be put into some context because two other Top 10 teams started first-year quarterbacks on Saturday, and they both lost at home to unranked teams. Now, of course, I'm talking about the defending, the reigning defending national champion, LSU Tigers, who gave up 600 passing yards on Saturday to Mike Leach's air raid offense in Mississippi State. Uh, Mississippi State, this is going to be a fun little nugget for you. They ran for nine yards in the whole game, and one by 10, nine. The air raid, it hit the SEC, and man, it, did it make a statement. So I'm not necessarily calling into question about whether or not uh, the, the SEC can be completely disrupted by the pirate Mike Leach, but for at least one week, we saw that a inexperienced quarterback even on the defending national champions that don't let anybody fool you lsu lost a lot but lsu still has a ton of talent and man for man there's no reason in the world that lsu should have lost that game on saturday and the fact that they did says a lot about matt mike leach it says a lot about his offense but it also says a lot about that lsu defense because they gave up a ton of yards to Mississippi State, and they gave up a ton of points, and they had gotten themselves back in that game, and they were never able to stop that offense. A few states over, we saw that Oklahoma managed for the second straight season to lose to Kansas State. Now, this is Kansas State, mind you, that two weeks before lost to Arkansas State. So the Big 12, is on shaky ground already. I don't think it's a situation where you're going to have multiple undefeated teams across college football, and so Oklahoma is out of the college football playoff picture already. But the reality of things for Oklahoma is, man, there is a long way to go, and if you're not beating Kansas State at home, what are you going to look like against Texas? What are you going to look like against Oklahoma State? I I just don't know. I mean, the last thing that we really saw that mattered from Oklahoma is they were getting a historically uh, large butt-kicking from LSU, and now here we are in, you know, their second game of the season, I guess, losing at home in a game that they were winning by three touchdowns in the second half. Now, one thing that we can, I think, surmise from this is that when Arthur Blank on Saturday afternoon saw Lincoln Riley's team blow a three touchdown lead in the second half I think his eyebrows went up and he was thinking I think I might have found my replacement for Dan Quinn the last thing I think I think is that uh, Braves fans better get ready for a snit a snit playoff run At the beginning of this season, once the MLB announced that the DH was going to be added to the National League, I proclaimed this season snit-proof. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry for all of it. It's all my fault. Um, I thought it was going to be snit-proof because the baffling bullpen management that we've seen from Brian Snicker over the last few years, which play a significantly uh, less important role, because he wouldn't have to be deciding when to take the pitcher out and when to pitch hit and, and all of that messiness. Not to mention the three batter um, minimum that MLB has employed for this season meant that less times that you would bring, you know, a left-handed guy in just to face one batter and all of that kind of stuff. So they really took a lot of the problems away from Snit. Unfortunately, the brave starting pitching staff gave a lot more problems back to Snit and, With the starting pitching being, as I've already mentioned, uh, I believe, at least it says it here on this piece of paper, the worst starting pitching of a playoff team in the history of mankind, um, when to pull the starter and who to bring in is going to be a huge factor in this series. And let's be honest, Braves fans, if, if we know that it's going to be really, really important, you cannot feel confident that. Brian Snicker's going to make the right choices because there have been many, many times in his managerial career where he just does things that make absolutely no sense. So I think I have one plan in particular that I think we should really get together over the next couple of days. We've got about 48 hours before the first game starts. I think we should start a GoFundMe. Now I say that, but I also need a little bit of help here. Does anybody know how much a sniper costs? I'm talking about a sniper fully equipped. they got to have their own gun and rifle. I can't be supplying people with guns and and bullets and all that kind of stuff. But a sniper who already has their own equipment, if somebody could look into that and just get back to me and let me know how much that costs. Because when that door opens on Wednesday afternoon and Luke Jackson begins running onto the field in a high-level situation or a high-leverage situation, I'm telling you right now, we all need a well-placed shot. So that's why we need a sniper. Now, before you get upset, I am not at all insinuating that anybody should murder Luke Jackson. I'm sure he's a nice fella. But a flesh wound to Luke Jackson would be a whole lot better than yet another broken heart to the entire Braves nation. you so much for listening to the podcast today i really appreciate it be back on thursday we'll be talking about uh our preview for the upcoming weekend of college and pro football we'll do a deep dive into the university of georgia maybe by then we'll have a little bit of clarity and nothing official i'm sure because kirby's not going to announce it uh before the game on saturday night but maybe a little bit more clarity on the starting quarterback position and just kind of a, an injury update for the for the team in general. Uh, we'll have that. We'll do a deep dive on Auburn, the what I feel may be, along with Georgia, uh, one of the more overrated teams in the country right now. And we'll also at least take a peek at how things went in game one of the playoffs with the Braves and kind of where that series stands, a little bit of update with that. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope you're having a good week and go dogs.